When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As befitting the name of this podcast, Compliance in the Weeds, Matt and I take a deep dive back again into the Credit Suisse enforcement action. We take a look at a more holistic approach to risk management by looking at both direct and indirect red flags, and more importantly, what does a transaction look like from a risk perspective? Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Matt Kelly for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. We're going to continue our exploration of uh, Credit Suisse, uh, perhaps going in a different direction. And Matt, uh, in addition to your absolutely fabulous article on internal controls, it struck me that there were really two transactions here. There was the original tuna bonds transaction and the due diligence and over uh, failure of internal controls in that transaction. But then there was a second transaction which came about because they, uh, the bank and uh, realized they were never going to get repaid because all of the money from the tuna bonds had been stolen. So they had to uh, rejigger the debt and put it into the Mozambican uh, national debt a- as a new offering. And the, the first thing that Credit Suisse did was pay itself off. So it covered itself by doing a second transaction, which was equally corrupt, but I really wanted to maybe use that to see if we could uh, have a broader uh, or discussion of a broader uh, review of risk and, and risk management. Was uh, there anything uh, on that part of the uh, Credit Suisse matter that really uh, caught your attention as well? Well, yeah, a, a couple of things were sticking out to me about Credit Suisse along the lines of what you're talking about, Tom. I was really interested in what the UK Financial Conduct Authority had published for its settlement order uh, regarding Credit Suisse. And for those who need a refresher, Credit Suisse ran into trouble with US regulators, British regulators, and Swiss regulators. Um, And in the United States, they ran into trouble with the Securities and Exchange Commission on internal controls and on the Justice Department for paying the bribes, uh, but then also with the UK and the Swiss. And the, the UK Financial Conduct Authority, with its settlement order, was really trying to get at the idea that um, Credit Suisse didn't have a good risk analysis capability. Uh, it did have risk analysis and compliance activities happening here and there in the company, and we can talk a bit about that, but uh, the language of the order was really talking a lot about holistic analysis and strategy, and and let me see if I can find exactly what I mean here. Um, I'll quote directly from the order. However, Credit Credit Suisse's consideration of the above risk factors was inadequate because it gave insufficient weight to risk factors individually and failed to consider them holistically. Credit Suisse failed to recognize that a corruption red flag will often be, rather than direct evidence of corruption or bribery, it will be apparent from the context of the transaction or the sector or the jurisdiction or counterparty. And Tom, I think that's kind of where you're going with your observations about how 
the the first uh, deal that Credit Suisse did with Mozambique, the tuna development thing, well, that became a mess that you know Credit Suisse was never going to get the gains it expected. So, oh, let's do another one, and that's where they started to play fast and loose much more, so they could make sure that Credit Suisse recouped all of its own investments and like. The whole thing just stinks. And I know that's kind of an oversimplification of the ethics and compliance process, that it just stinks, but that's kind of where the the FCA was going with its issues. Like, you know, guys, you had a bunch of red flags, you had your due diligence reports, and yet for some reason the reputation risk process was underfunded, the executives who were involved in the approval process weren't looking at the compliance evidence that showed this was a deal to be avoided. There was the master of kickbacks who was involved in the deals. Um, and they, they use a lot of words like strategy. What was the bank's overall strategy to avoid and reduce corruption risk? Not just the tactics of a good due diligence report or a good procedure for reputation risk review. But a strategy is we are deciding to do these specific things to achieve this goal, and our goal is supposed to be less corruption, so we're really going to put this into force. And I don't know, Tom, maybe you know, I'll stop talking and let you respond to all of that, but it seems to me that that's what they were trying to achieve. Uh, the they the financial conduct authority. That's what they're trying to say. Is this is what we want to see? Is banks really just keeping their head in the game and thinking about is this deal appropriate or not? And if it's not, don't do it. And and that didn't happen here. I was trying to think of us any analogy from the traditional FCPA world, Matt. And the closest I could come up with was Goldman Sachs mm-hmm. in the Malaysian one MDB deals where they made $200 million on floating $3 billion of bonds, which I think everyone recognized from the regulators on down was uh, a very large amount of money uh, for uh, a, a, trend, a bond floating transaction. But I really like that approach. But are compliance professionals, uh, do they have enough information to really look at an overall transaction? If it's you know someone like me, a lawyer moving over to the compliance function, don't you really need to depend on the business folks or financial analysts to really help you understand if there are those indirect red flags around overall deal profitability or the amount it's going to bring in? Well, I I don't even know if I would say looking from one silo to the next to piece together the mosaic. It's more I'd be more curious about one level to the next on the seniority scale, because that seems to be where a lot of this broke down, Um, that different silos, yeah, they were doing actually fairly good work. You know, the compliance team at Credit Suisse turned up a really bad due diligence report with the master of kickbacks. And uh, several other bankers within Credit Suisse's European division did say, yeah, we know this master of kickback guy, and he shouldn't be involved in this deal. We don't want to do business with him. I think the exact phrase that one banker used was, this is an undesirable client. Um, And still, the ones who would actually then approve a client relationship, we would be going to be the senior executives saying, are we really going to do this? They are the ones who turn the blind eye. And so I don't know that the problem here is so much one silo to the next as it is one seniority level to the next, which is why we should have chief compliance officers and chief risk officers part of the C-suite right up at the top 
not being just bundled in the legal function. Um, and Tom, I also, I have to wonder how much are we getting hung up on the fact that, that well, this is a bank. And in banks, risk management and compliance are two very separate functions, which is not the case at most other industries. So there are some lessons that I'm trying to still figure out how applicable are they to the non-banks of the world where you probably don't have a dedicated chief reputation risk person or a reputation risk process. Large banks, they do. They're, they're very clear on that. And they have a regulatory compliance officer who is in charge of really regulatory compliance. And they have a risk officer who's in charge of all the other ways this deal could bring us harm, including reputation harm. Uh, you, you don't really see that in like a FCPA case involving a pharma company or an energy company. They don't have that oversight structure. So they've got a different set of, of challenges to try and figure out, do we engage with this or not? Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but it's just it's fascinating to see how, you, again and again, I'm going to keep coming back to this, Credit Suisse had a lot of parts of the enterprise doing good things that just, they didn't rise up to the level where senior management would say, okay, we can see all of these pockets of risk and compliance activity sending us the message that this deal we shouldn't do. That's the part that never happened. They did the deal. Well, where might that oversight sit? Should there be some type of deal review committee or some something else? It seems like to me Goldman Sachs had that type of review. Or should it, uh, uh, rather than trying to paint uh, a picture with the mosaics from different silos to have someone who can really uh, cut across all of those silos to see the parts of all of the pieces of all the whole part. Well, I think this is where we get into some of the sticky mess of the clubby nature of investment banking is, yeah, you know, Credit Suisse, they had a deal review committee too. Uh, and part of that was to go through a reputation risk process now, sure, there were a total of three employees worldwide at Credit Suisse who were de dedicated to the reputation risk process, and they were under-resourced, um, but they had one. It's just because it was under-resourced, and I would say, well, I don't know what the word is here, under the, the proper place in the org chart, you know, under-escalated, under-profiled. They were too far down. Uh, they didn't get the uh, the, the proper opportunity to tell the deal-making committee, this is a bad deal, don't do this. The deal-making committee had too many ways to turn a blind eye to what other parts of the enterprise were telling you. Now, Tom, to your idea, should there be one more senior executive who can cut across all of this and inject the proper risk red flags and risk alarms to the deal-making committee? I mean, yeah, I would say so in theory. I'm sure in practice, any investment banker who's listening to this podcast is thinking, I can tell you a dozen different ways, Matt and Tom, why that won't actually work. Um, you know, is that person going to be, what, a, be able to invalidate a bunch of uh, managing directors who say we want to approve this deal? I, that would be nice, but I don't think that's the way most investment bankers are going to work. Um, is that person going to be next to the CEO? Is the CEO going to get involved in a lot of these deals? Um, and improving them? Maybe, but you know, the CEO, CEO can't be involved in approving every deal. Uh, there has to be some level of deals that are beneath his or her purview because they're too small and they've got a day job running the business. So there are some particular challenges with investment banks 
that I'm not quite sure what the right oversight structure would be, um, especially for the very large ones, because they seem to have so much structure, they can't get out of their own way to do what, in hindsight, seems like the right thing to do. Um, yeah. So let me pick up on one of the points you made, Matt, uh, which is around the the difference, if any, I would say, between uh, private equity, private uh, commercial bank, rather, financing and just a regular public corporation, because it because it strikes me, many of these same challenges face the you name the industry, pharma, telecom, energy, et cetera, uh, from the compliance perspective to understand do the overall terms of the deal, the profitability of the deal, to any other parts of the deal, other than perhaps indirect red flags, mean it's something that we need to take a deeper dive into? I think that is exactly what the Financial Conduct Authority was trying to convey in the language of its settlement order. Um, you know, but I, I can't help but notice the Financial Conduct Authority was really good at describing what the problem was with Credit Suisse, but they didn't give much detail on, okay, so what would the actual solution look like? What would the structure and the practices be that would be effective at a large investment bank? Uh, where they talk about, you know, what was the language they said, in reviewing each risk individually and holistically. Well, how exactly? Or if you want to say that the bank needs an overall compliance strategy to achieve the objective of fewer financial risks or fewer corruption risks and less financial crime, that's great. I agree with the statement, but how's that actually going to work in practice? Um, plus, even if they sketched it out for Credit Suisse, uh, which they didn't in their settlement order, uh, they you still have other banks that might be structured very differently, and then you still have all the other public companies in the world that aren't structured like investment banks at all. Uh, so I don't know what that solution would be. I do think that non-banks would actually have a bit of an easier time because they do have a more direct... Um, corporate structure. There's not this top-heavy you know, thing of a bunch of investment bankers who are managing directors are all jockeying to be the, the next one on the management committee or the CEO successor, and they've got far more of their compensation tied up in incentives and closing deals that doesn't necessarily, that dynamic isn't as pronounced in other industries. Um, so I, I think that to a certain extent, a corporation in the more traditional sense can have a better opportunity. Here are the business functions in the C-suite. We're going to have the compliance officer. He's not going to be uh, the legal officer, and he or she is going to be part of the senior management team that meets every week to review all of our big strategic initiatives. Like That's easy to do, or easier to do if you're a publicly traded company than an investment bank, especially a big global one with, like, you know, come on, they've got Machiavellian pockets of jockeying for position here, there, and everywhere, up to their eyeballs. And I think much more so than at other large publicly traded companies. So the, the solution to this, um, typically we don't see that uh, from the regulators in any enforcement orders. I think uh, you correctly noted the uh, FCA really was very good about talking about what failed. But if we, if we move that forward to any type of guidance that the DOJ, SEC, or any other regulator might 
try to provide on this. Do you think it would be something as basic as uh, you must take a mo more holistic approach and you go figure out the way to implement that or, or some other direction? We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The closest I've seen to an actual piece of good practical guidance about this, um, I would say that, you know, a couple of years ago, Tom, there was this momentary spasm of chatter in business conduct world talking about conduct risk. That's what everybody was worried about in banking, conduct risk. We're worried about it at the New York Fed. We're worried about it at the Financial Conduct Authority, here, there, and everywhere. And you know that there is great risk in banking to commit misconduct. I get that. But then, like, so what do you actually do about it? And there isn't any formal guidance, but the thing that I saw that came closest to it was a speech by a former president of the New York Fed, Bill Dudley, uh, he gave that speech while he was in London, still serving as chair of the New York Fed, I want to say in 2016 or so. Uh, but he basically said the bank should be thinking about long-term sustainability, long-term growth, and you know, not posing systemic risk to its counterparties or to the public at large. These are the sort of big fundamentals that a bank wants to encourage. We want to be stable and successful over the long term. We do not want short-term profits. Because that's what gets people doing this hinky stuff like the Mozambique deals. So, so then, he, then Bill Dudley said, well, think about your incentive structure at the bank and how is your incentive structure driving people, your employees, to think about long-term success and long-term stability and putting ethical priorities first or ethical values first, making ethical values a priority. Think about what your incentive structure is for those things. And you will find at many banks, he said, that their ethical priorities and their professed values, we're all for long-term stability and growth and you know we're all long-term everywhere. But if you look at your incentive plans for bankers, they're totally out of step with that. They're all short-term. And he said that's where a bank should start to reduce its conduct risk. And that's still a fair bit of theory, but at least it's giving you specific things to think about if you're on the executive team. And from there, then you could start to reverse engineer what are the practices that we want to implement to reduce conduct risk. There'll be some policies, there'll be some procedures. It's not quite the same as just the more diehard regulatory compliance stuff, which also has to happen. And I'll see if we can dig up a link to Bill Dudley's speech and maybe put it in the show notes or something, because it's worth reading. But that's as close as I have seen a banker to say, or a bank regulator to say, here's how we would encourage you to think about conduct risk and how to manage conduct risk at a high level. It's easy to say that's the problem, and a lot of regulators do. It is few and far between who give good practical advice about, here's how you could try to reduce it. 
it also seems to me, Matt, this really works into a discussion or a dialogue perhaps you have had over the years about not simply what is risk, but how broadly do you need to, to look at risk? And I know you've advocated for a much broader perspective on risk from financial institutions to institutional investors to uh, public companies. Uh, it's. It, I would also observe that it seems uh, the compliance officer's risk portfolio has continued to expand literally over the past 10 years so that this should be something that would be within that dialogue I think you've had over the last few years. Would that be fair? Well, I, I would say so because, uh, as I've often said, I think – the most important question when thinking about issues of corporate misconduct and the consequences are is, who cares? Because any time a lawyer stands up and says, "Well, what we did might look unethical, but it is illegal, but it is technically legal," as soon as they say technically it's legal, even though you might think it's unethical, the appropriate response there is, "Dude, who cares?" Because most of the stakeholders will not care that what you did was technically legal. They will still say, this has not passed the ethics smell test, and we are going to try to hold you accountable in all sorts of ways. That has become also much easier for stakeholders to do in the age of social media. Um, and, you know, there are various other consequences you could have. Uh, I will take a different example from the realm of cybersecurity that you might have great compliance with cybersecurity standards, but if you still are not going above and beyond and you suffer a ransomware attack and your operations are totally disrupted, if you go to the board and say, well, you know, we did everything we were required to do, so it's not the end of the world, you know, we don't have, we're not going to have a regulatory enforcement action for being offline for three days, try saying that to your board because they will then say, who cares? Because our business is in shambles and we're all over the front page. There's a lot of power in asking who cares about something that is legal but still brings a risk of some kind, including an ethical risk, a reputation risk, and those things are still going to have to be addressed somehow. I hope everyone listening to this podcast understands why we named this podcast Compliance into the Weeds, because this has been <laughs> a lot of fun to take a very deep dive into a very geeky topic and it's sort of inside baseball squared. So, uh, but really, I think there's a lot to unpack there the more uh, we have this conversation, Matt. So maybe we can think about this. And if we see some other examples down the road, we can bring those up as well. Uh, I hope so, Tom. Thank you. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. I'm going to link to Matt's blog post in our show notes. So check that out for additional information. I'd also like to tell you about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Design Thinking in Compliance, where with my co-host Karsten Tams, we take a look at the social engineering tool of design thinking and how it can create greater efficiency and effectiveness in your compliance program. So check out Design Thinking in Compliance. It posts every other Wednesday. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.